All right. Well, it's kind of fun. We could just visit forever. It'd be nice if we could visit over in the new building, huh? I was going to tell you when we're going to be over there, but no one knows. It's like the second coming. Just, uh, but if you have something to pray about, pray about the elevator inspection coming up on the 8th. Um, it is a milestone. The elevator inspectors are very busy, and uh, so uh, we kind of have to just wait and wait and wait. And if there's one little thing isn't wrong, we'll have to wait another who knows how long. So pray for elevator inspections. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 16, where we're going to be finishing up the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We've kind of gone through the parable, and we've looked at different aspects of it, and today we're going to finish the parable looking at one more um, just interesting angle from this really well-known parable that Jesus uh, gave towards the end of his life. As you're finding Luke 16, uh, I just want to talk to you about miracles, signs, wonders, things like that. Uh, you know, God has uh, done a lot of miracles. If you read through the scriptures, he's done some incredible miracles. Some he's done just on his own, like creation, things like that. Other things he's done through other people who have been gifted or empowered to do these various miracles. And a lot of times when, um, you know, we read these things in the Bible, it probably happens to you as it happens to me. You kind of think, I'd kind of like to see that. I'd like to be there at the dividing of the Red Sea. I'd like to see somebody raised from the dead. I'd like to see some blind man healed. I'd like to see those things. And maybe you have thought some of those same things too. And and one of the things that would be great is, is, you know, if if you could do some incredible miracle or something, then all those people who don't believe in God, you could say, aha, I told you. Did you see that? That mountain just leapt out into the sea. And so obviously God exists. And I think we all kind of have that little desire to have some supernatural manifestation of power so that people will be compelled to believe there's a God. You see it in the media that the whole world is really kind of consumed with the supernatural, right? I mean, think about all the different things um, in TV shows and movies and books and magazines uh, uh, about the supernatural and the paranormal and, you know, powers, uh, you know, people can create things and move things and, and do all of these different things. You know, if I could just be like Superman, if I could just be like Spider-Man or the Invisible Man or X-Man or a vampire... And these are kind of things that are being thrown at the world at just an ever-increasing rate until pretty soon there's hardly any show that doesn't have some manifestation of some supernatural power or miracle. Now why would Satan, who is the god of this world, want to promote these external signs and wonders through the media and just so thoroughly saturate society with that? You have to wonder. You know, there's this tsunami of miracles that are coming at us through the media. And as we've learned before, God doesn't do miracles to entertain people. God doesn't say, well, let me show you this. Well, check this out. Well, I can do this. Ah, why that? I mean, he's not, you know, an illusionist. He's not here to impress us with uh, wowing miracles. At certain times, in really three major instances in history, God has given men actually the power to do miracles for the purpose of authenticating the messenger and his message. Those three time periods are Moses, who of course wrote the first five books of the Bible and went and did a lot of miracles, the, the uh, you know, dividing the sea and, uh, you know, making water come out of the rock and all those things that happen you read about in Exodus. And not only that, you have uh, later on Elisha and Elijah, those two prophets that did miracles. Elijah was the first one and his uh, um, companion, his disciple, Elisha, came after and they did miracles uh, and the Bible is being written then. And then Jesus and the disciples come on the scene and, and a few of the early church disciples had the power to do miracles. And so we 
see that in the, in the whole course of the history of the world, there are three groups in specific locations for a specific time, for a specific purpose of authenticating the message and the messenger while the Bible is being written. And that's pretty much it. In addition to this, God has done miracles apart from people, you know, and being given the gift of miracles. And uh, I think the most common miracle is salvation. I mean, a lot of you here this morning are miracles. Uh, there are people here who, if you were to look at them now, you would have no idea they used to be, you know, the Satan worshiper, or the drug addict, the criminal or whatever. It, they look pretty good next to you. I mean, it's like, you know, they don't even look scary. God has so transformed their life, you know, at one moment they were coughing up blood in the park and, and you know, just wasted away from drugs and now they're clothed in their right mind and a business person. And you think, well, what happened? How did that happen to them? How did their whole life change? What enabled them to just walk away from their sin and to get a whole different drive, a purpose in life, a worldview? What made them become so different than they ever were before? Well, the answer is, is God, by His grace, helped them understand that they were sinners. Helped them understand that Christ died on the cross for their sins, in their place, suffered the death that they should have died. And by believing in Christ, by trusting in what He accomplished on the cross, that they were given the free gift of eternal life, and their whole lives changed. I mean, it is the story of every Christian. Now, Satan knows, though, that... Men long for miracles, and he uses it against us. You say, well, well, how is that? Listen to what Jesus said when the disciples came to him in what is called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. When the disciples came to him and asked him, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? This is one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24 verses 24 and 25. He said, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. Jesus says in the last times, right before he comes, there's going to be all these people saying, I am the Christ, and there's going to be false teachers, and they're going to do signs and wonders. Interesting, isn't it? And Jesus says, I've told you in the advance, don't you come to heaven, don't you show up and say, but Lord, I didn't know they were going to be doing miracles. I've told you in advance. No, none of this I didn't know. You know because I've told you. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, also speaking of the time directly before the second coming of Christ, during what is often referred to as the tribulation, speaks of the Antichrist and listen to this Antichrist figure who is empowered by Satan. Listen to how he deceives people. First Thessalonians 2.8 says, Then that lawless one, speaking the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearance and his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Did you see that? Satan comes on the scene working through this man called the Antichrist and he deceives people through lying false signs and wonders. What people are deceived? The people who won't believe in this book, the Bible. And so they become easy prey. Now you might be wondering, well, why doesn't God show more miracles today? I mean, if he's God and he's still powerful and, you know, why doesn't he do some more wowing tricks to, you know, show people he's hiding behind the scenes and he's still there. You know, why not give some people the gift of healing and go down there and just empty out St. Joe's and then run over to Glendale Memorial and just empty it out. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? You'd see all those, you know, cameras and movie people looking at just going from bed to bed, just healing everybody. Everybody's walking out trying to get out of their little jammies. Leaping around, laughing, having fun. I mean, why doesn't he do that? 
And you know what? The reason is this. God expects you to read your Bible and believe it. You want to see some miracles? You read the scriptures. You know, a lot of times we want to see miracles happen because we don't want to believe the scriptures. Now, let me just ask you, do you remember when Ananias and Sapphira lied about giving to the church in in Acts chapter 5 and God struck them dead? Do you think God should keep doing that too? No, no, that's not. We don't want that to keep happening. That miracle was bad. You see, the thing is, is sometimes we... We don't want to just learn. We just don't want to believe the scriptures. Well, thankfully, God killed Uzzah when he touched the ark as an example. Thankfully, God killed Nadab and Abihu when they didn't worship acceptably. And he doesn't do that to everybody. Thankfully, he killed Ananias and Sapphira. But he didn't do that to everybody. He does it as an example, and then he puts it in the book so we can read it and learn from them. So we don't have to go through it, thankfully. But in this world, what we find is people are just hungering after the miraculous. People who will tell you that, oh, God spoke to me. Oh, I had a vision from God. Oh, I went to heaven and came back 90 minutes later. If you give a lot of money to my ministry, God might heal you. And these are the kind of things that are going on. And in Jesus' time, it was what was happening then. We read in John chapter 4, verse 48, uh, Jesus speaking to the religious leader says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Jews ask for signs, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, when you go through Acts, you discover that in the early church, Paul did a lot of miracles, didn't he? But whenever he came to people who said, I want to see a miracle, do a trick, do a show, wow me, something like that, what did they get? The gospel. The good news that Christ died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose again in the third day, and believe in that. That's what they got. Believe your life will be changed and that's the only miracle you're going to get. And a lot of times I think we think we might need miracles today. And that is why there are so many false teachers on TV saying, you know, send money so we can do these miracles. Send money so soon we can begin, you know, healing all the sick and raising the dead as if money had something to do with their ability to do miracles. Do you remember Gehazi in the Old Testament? Gehazi was Elisha's servant. And remember what happened with Gehazi? Naaman the leper was there. Remember, Elisha healed him. And uh, he wanted to give, he was very wealthy. He wanted to give Elisha money or whatever he wanted. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to take money for miracles. And so he sends him on his way. But his servant Gehazi was thinking, I could use him. I'm going to follow him. So he sneaks out and catches up. Yeah, my master changed his mind and uh, I think he would like a little reward. What do you got? And so pretty soon, Naaman starts giving him all this stuff and as soon as he takes it, what happens? The Lord strikes him with leprosy. You remember Simon, the magician in Acts chapter 8. He sees the apostles in the early church doing these miracles and he is so fascinated and he's so envious and he's so jealous because he wants the fame, he wants the power, he wants to make money off these miracles. And so he says to Peter, can I buy this ability from you? And Peter rebukes him, tells him to repent and tells him he's in the gull of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. Why? Because he thought that he could purchase... This ability to do miracles as if it was for sale or if it was for self-promotion to make one wealthy. And this is what you see going on in the world today. You know, they come on and they're weeping and they're crying on TV and give to the ministry and we, we just need to heal people in the name of Jesus. And then they drive away in their Rolls Royce. So what about evangelism, though? I mean, if you're talking about doing miracles, you think that evangelism should come in there. And what about the people who say, well, we need miracles to do evangelism. We need miracles because that will get people's attention, and then we can share the gospel with them, and then people will come to Christ. Well, surely that is a good motive, right? 
Surely we need miracles to happen so that people will see that there is a God, that the messenger is true to authenticate that message so that they will come to Christ. Because isn't that what happened in the Old Testament? Isn't that what happened with Jesus and the apostles? Well, we're going to find out from the parable this morning. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. The text reads, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send it to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. We have learned from this parable about the great reversal that takes place between the wicked and the righteous after they die. We've learned about the agonies of hell, some scary things, and the glories of heaven, which are really wonderful things. But now, this morning, I just want to show you four reasons why lost people need the gospel and not miracles. And hopefully this will keep you from being led astray from people who are telling you the exact opposite. The first thing we learn from this parable is you can't be an evangelist in hell. Look at verses 27 and 28. The rich man has just been refused his first request to have Lazarus come, bring some water and dip it on his tongue in hell to cool cool him off because he's in agony in the flames. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now notice, the five brothers are in the same place the rich man is. They have a blatant disregard for the Scriptures. They're Jews. They're living in Israel. Surely they were raised up, went through their bar mitzvahs. You know, surely they went to the temple, offered their sacrifices, celebrated the feast. They were doing the the, the ritual things that the Jews did, trusting in their inheritance, uh, being inheritance from Abraham and in his line and being descendants of Abraham. And surely they were going to get into heaven. But now the rich man, uh, he's concerned. He all of a sudden has this interesting uh, motivation to evangelize. Because he realizes his brothers are in the same place he is. And if something isn't done, they will end up in hell like he is in hell. They are no closer to God than the lost Gentile idolater. Of course, they they are religious. They would say, we believe in the Hebrew Scriptures. We believe in the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We believe in the coming of the Messiah. They believe all these things. The problem is they don't know God. They just know facts about God. And like their brother, they are on their way to hell, for they have not believed the Scriptures. And the rich man in hell is now interested in evangelism. But the lesson we learn here is you can't evangelize anyone from hell. It's too late. You don't get to be sent back to earth. You don't get to be like those ghosts in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol who come back to warn the unrepentant they need to repent and get their lives right so that they don't go to that same place you've gone to. 
No one goes back because there's no evangelism there. You have people telling you stories like, well, I died and I came back from the dead or I died and I went to hell and came back or I died and came back from heaven 90 minutes later or something like that. Listen, it didn't happen. I mean, people say, well, how could you say that? Well, because the Bible says different. When Job is speaking of death in Job chapter 7, verses 7 through 10, this is what he says. Now listen to what Job says about coming back after you die. He says, remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Her eyes will be on me, but I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So is he who goes down to Sheol or the grave. He does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. So when someone comes to you and says, I died and I've come back to my house, who are you going to believe? God or the guy with the New York Times bestseller? And if you're out there right now and you're rejecting Christ and you're putting him at arm's length and you know, I don't know if I want to give my life to Christ. I don't know if I want to follow Christ. I don't know why, if I want to, you know, let go of my sins. Uh, I'm just going to postpone it because after all, you know, I've got some sins I need to enjoy or I want to first pick my husband and my wife before God interferes. I want to make sure that, you know, I enjoy my immorality and my pornography or my entertainment and, and I'm just going to set him off. Listen, you're really not any different than the Jews of Jesus' time who, when Jesus was being crucified and they said, what do you want me to do with your king? And he says, let his blood be on our head. We have no king but Caesar. And if that's what you're saying, by postponing, by procrastinating, by saying, I know the truth, but I'm not going to give my life to Christ, what you're really saying is, we will have no one rule my life but Satan. I want Satan to stay my father. I want him to steer my course. I don't want God controlling my life. But think of those you, you love. Think of those you love. Think about being in hell and thinking of those you love like the rich man here in this in this parable your own soul is perishing in hell and you're looking out and you're seeing those you love headed to that same place where you are now suffering and you can't do anything about it know this you will have a difficult time in this life leading them to the lord if you have rejected the lord it's like, listen, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to turn from your sins. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection to save you. You need to do that because if you don't do that, you're going to perish in hell. Now, it's not for me, but it would be good for you. I have chosen to have my sin and perish in hell for eternity, but it, you need to repent. See, that just doesn't work, does it? No, you need to first give your life to Christ. And then when your life changes, you can go to them and you have some credibility the salesman is suspect who will not use his own product. So be warned, there is no evangelizing in hell. Secondly, you can't send missionaries from hell either. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. He says, then I beg you, Father, that you send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. Because I have five brothers in order that he may warn them. Do you see what's going on here? He's saying, now, okay, I can't go send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. And it's clear from the middle, if you look down in verse 30, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He wants a missionary sent. The rich man has now created his own missions agency. Hellfire missions. And he is the chairman. And he wants Lazarus to be his first missionary. Can you send Lazarus to evangelize my brother's Send Lazarus back from this place of paradise he is at now and send him back to evangelize my brothers. But of course, Abraham twice denies his request. Why? Because there's no sending missionaries from hell either. Let's say you're a grandparent and imagine being in the new children's building. Um... And you're standing there and you're looking out towards Main Street in the second floor and you're just thinking, man, this is a good view up here. This is nice. And, 
And all of a sudden you see out of the corner of your eye and there's a little child out there and you go, "Ah, that's my grandson. And he's on the sidewalk and no one's out there. And you see him walking towards the road and so you yell, but we've got these super insulated windows so no sound goes through. And you scream louder, but he doesn't hear you. And he's walking towards the street and he steps off the curb and you see a car's coming and you're screaming, you're calling for other people. No one's there. And you see the collision about ready to happen. Now, does that create tension in you? Now imagine being in hell and seeing your loved ones headed not just for an accident, but for eternal hell fire and not being able to do anything. Now is the time to do something. Now is the time to talk to them. Now is the time to get right with the Lord. Because in hell, there's no sending missionaries. You need to get involved in your own personal missions. You need to tell people about Christ. Tell people about Jesus, how they can get to heaven. Invite them to church. Talk to them. Why? Because a lot of people are just out there. They just don't know. They just, they don't know. They've, most churches, you just go and they just have ritual there. There's, they don't teach the Bible. They don't show people what the scriptures say. Talk to them. Talk to them. You may think, well, I don't really know that much. Yes, you do. You know way more than most people do. And get involved in missions. Get involved in missions. You know, go on a short-term missions trip. I think everybody here needs to go on a short-term missions. If you can walk and still breathe, you need to go. Show up and just be, especially in a third world country. It will fix your complaining. You will come back and kiss the tarmac after you get off the plane. You need to go out there and do your part to bring other people to Christ, to pray for our missionaries, to give to missions, to be your own missionary. Because if you die without Christ, you won't be able to send anybody to your loved ones. Third, you are deluded if you think miracles can save or are necessary instruments of salvation. Sometimes we have this idea that, you know... If, if they could just see a miracle, then they would believe. And that's what the rich man is thinking, isn't it? But Abraham, instead, when he says, can you, can you raise him from the dead? So when he shows up, they go, Lazarus? Aren't you the guy who was outside my brother's gate? You know, the, outside his mansion, dying out there that we kind of just snubbed our nose out? I thought you died. Well, I did. I'm back. I have a message for you. Surely that would be compelling. See, that's his thought. The problem is, Abraham says something which, if you don't know Christ, seems a little cold, maybe a little cruel, maybe even mean. He basically says, they have Moses and the prophets. What? Let them read the Bible. And then he, he, he argues, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, if there's a miracle... That will cause them to repent. And now he says someone. He doesn't even care if it's Lazarus or not. Anybody will do. After Jesus cleansed the temple in John 2.18, the Jews asked, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They want to see a sign. In John chapter 6, verse 30, they, uh, what then do you do for a sign that we may believe you? The Jews said. Or in Matthew twelve thirty eight, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And you remember Jesus' words in Luke eleven twenty nine, this generation is a wicked generation, it seeks a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, and they had no idea what that meant and missed it. And Jesus here, what Jesus has done is he's put the theology of the Jewish leaders into the mind, into the person of the rich man in the parable. And so, though they're shocked that the man's in hell, when Jesus says, you know, the rich man says, raise him and then they will believe, all the the Pharisees who are listening right now to this parable are going, that's right, that's right, that's right, do the miracle. Because that's what they're all saying. They want the miracle too. And notice, couched in this request really, is kind of a subtle rebuke to Abraham. If someone goes... To them from the dead, they will repent 
if that would have happened to me, then I wouldn't be here in hell. That's what's happening, right? And do you see his pride here? You can't expect them to just believe the Bible, to believe the gospel. You can't just expect them to have faith in this book. I mean, listen, this is the huge error that's going on today. You've you got to have some scientific proofs. You need a miracle. You need a vision. You need a revelation from God. So Moses gets the snake, uh, the staff, and he turns it into a snake. Now, did Pharaoh just break down and repent and submit himself to God? No. And so then he did, a, you know, ten plagues that wiped out all Egypt. Then leaves, this huge pillar of fire comes down out of heaven. The Red Sea parts, all of Israel walks through, and then all of Pharaoh's army, they all break down and give their lives to the Lord. No! They run into the miracle! And they all perish by the miracle in unbelief. But good thing the Israelites saw all this and were on the other side being fed every day with manna from heaven, having rocks come out of, uh, water come out of rocks, seeing God judge grumblers with serpents and opening up the ground and fire proceeding out from the Lord every day, uh, a pillar of cloud covering the camp every day, a pillar of fire alighting it, their food falling from heaven, water miraculously appearing Every day, every day, miracles every day. And what does the author of Hebrews say in Hebrews chapter 3 towards the end? What happened to that generation? They all died in unbelief. Though they had seen his works for 40 years. Don't let anybody tell you, you've got to have a miracle. If you don't have a miracle, they're never going to believe. No. Our Kent Hughes says this is exactly what our culture says today. The Bible is not enough. The resurrection is not enough. We need a special sign, a wonder. Then they would believe. And how arrogant we humans are daring to tell God what he must do if we are to believe. If God would just send ambassadors from the other side, great multitudes would believe. Would they? Jesus' parable shouts a resounding no, end quote. That's what they're looking for. At the end of Jesus' ministry, John tells us in his gospel, but though he had performed so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing. So don't ever think that miracles are compelling. Don't ever think that miracles force people to believe or are so convincing because the fact is the people in history who saw the miracles, very few of them believed They are authenticators of the messenger and his message. And the message is what brings people to Christ. If there is no evangelism from hell, if you can't send missionaries from hell, if even miracles won't bring people to Christ, then what does? And that's where we're going to look at the fourth point. You must trust in the sufficiency of the word of God. Right after the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus back to evangelize his brother, in verse 29, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. And this phrase, Moses and the prophets, is one of many synonyms for the Bible, the word of God, the scriptures, uh, the law and the prophets and the writings. They had many terms to dis- describe it um, in the scriptures. And, and this is just one of them. Let them read their Bibles. You say, well, why does he say that? Because that's how people escape the consequences of their sin. God has put this very simple message in the Bible. And that message is, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Now, that seems very simple. You mean I don't have to walk on glass? No. I don't have to lay on a bed of nails? No. I don't have to, like, you know, uh, be a hermit and, and, you know, whip myself and, uh, what do I have to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved. But don't I need to know? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you sure I don't have to just trust that Christ died for you and rose again on the third day? Believe! Believe! Like, well, you know, maybe I can help God out. No! Jesus didn't die because you, he needed you to help him out. He doesn't need you to help him out because you can't help yourself out. He did it all. And that's the incredible gift of God. 
That's what we celebrated in communion. That because we couldn't save ourselves, Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day so that we, through faith in Him, could receive the free gift of eternal life. And we do that by faith. And even faith itself is the gift of God. You remember what Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Think about it. Paul writes to the Philippians and says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. To you it has been granted by God to believe in Him. Satan tells you, man, you need some evidences. You need a miracle. You need a proof. You need to not have faith. You need some data. You need something you can touch and handle and some facts and some, you know, material goods. But that's not what brings people to Christ. God reveals His truth to people through the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11 where he says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. When you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit reveals to you the things of God so your Bible begins to make sense. Before you know Christ, and we've heard this tons of time as we've uh, listened to testimonies and people being baptized, how they said, I read the Bible, it just didn't make sense. And I read the Bible and it didn't make sense. And it seemed so weird and the stories were so strange and it just never seemed to, to work. And all of a sudden I gave my life to Christ and the next time I read the Bible, it was like, whoa, how did that get there? And then you run to all your unbelieving relatives and go, did you see that? And they go, what's that? That's weird. You go, oh, isn't this wonderful? No, not really. I mean, don't you see what it's saying here? So? And all of a sudden you get a clue. I'm changed. I'm changed. God changed me. I can now, when I read the scriptures, it's like a whole different thing. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man, because he doesn't have the Spirit of God, cannot understand the things of God for they are spiritually praised. And the Greek literally says he doesn't have the power within himself to, un- to understand the Scriptures in an experiential way. Yeah, he can learn the stories. He can you know, learn Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. I mean, he can be a Bible scholar. No Holy Spirit. He doesn't experience the life-transforming truths of God's Word. The rich man is so worldly in his view of salvation that even though he's in hell, he argues with Abraham about how to get to heaven. Think about that. My advice to you is never take the advice of somebody who's utterly failed in anything. Some guy on the street, New York, outside of Wall Street, in the gutter. What are you? I'm a stockbroker. Let me tell you how to invest your money. I wouldn't. I wouldn't listen to him. I mean, here the, he argues and he says, but no, Father Abraham, in verse 30, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Listen, I know better than you. All you are is the father of faith. I mean, granted, you're in heaven and I'm in hell. But let me tell you how it's done. That's what he's saying. But of course, again, Abraham's reply is, is that they do not listen to Moses and the pro- Moses and the prophets, neither will they per- be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. If you don't listen to Moses, if you don't listen to prophets, you're not going to be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Sorry. Paul tells us what saves people. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, as he's talking about that we need preachers and those preachers need to be sent or they're never going to hear the good news. And then he says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's how it works. You mean to tell me that all I need to do is tell somebody the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection for sinners. Just kind of explain that and tell them to believe that and, and that's enough? That's enough. Somebody came up to me after the service and said, you know, and I'm sure in the gospel sometimes I, I wonder if I should quote verses or I wonder if I should do this. I said, well, just tell them the truth. You can quote the verses if you want or summarize the verses. 
You know, I don't want to misquote the Bible. It's like you always do. It was written in Greek and Hebrew. (laughs) Don't worry about it. You're going to get it wrong. One of the most definitive texts which teach us the sufficiency of scriptures is in Second Peter chapter 1. I want you to turn in your Bible. Go towards, towards the end of your Bible. There's Revelation. If you go to Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, and then you go back several books, there's a little book named Jude, and then First, Second, and Third John, or before that, and then right before the books, the little letters to John is Second Peter. And I want to show you this, because this is really the most wonderful and definitive text on the sufficiency of God's Word found anywhere in the Bible. This this is, this is it. I mean, Psalm 19 does a good job. And Psalm 119 is huge. But when it comes, comes to making this statement that God's word is sufficient over and against experiences and even miracles, this is the text. And let me show you why. Now, if you look at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, Paul de, or Peter does his normal introduction in uh, the first couple of verses. And then in verse 3, he says this, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And here he's talking to believers and says, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through The true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Well, you say, well, that's good. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, that's good. And where does it come through? Through the true knowledge. Well, where do you get the true knowledge? Through the word of God, the word of the truth, the Bible. That's it. And then he goes on to speak of this over and over and over again. In verse 4, he then refers to it as his precious and magnificent promises. Now, where do you get that? In the Bible. Then he goes on to talk about knowledge in verse 5. At the end of verse 5. And knowledge at the beginning of verse 6. And at the end of verse 8. Then he alludes to them as these things. That's it's referring back to the knowledge and the true knowledge. He's just mentioned six other times. These things that is the truth of God's word. And he does it again in verse 10. And twice in verse 12. And again in verse 15. So, so though Peter is really talking, the theme of Second Peter is false teachers and how to deal with false teachers. He starts off his book by arguing the sufficiency of the scriptures. Why? Because when you know the truth and you're living the truth, you'll be protected from false teachers. So he does that over and over and over again. It's all the way through. But then when we get to verse 16, there's t- at first glance, it appears there's a 90 degree turn in the road because Peter then writes this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, which we, when we were with him up on the holy mountain. So, What is he referring to? This is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember in the Gospels? You remember what happened there? What happened there is God God appeared, actually speaks directly to Peter, James, and John when Jesus is with them up on the mountain and says, we heard this voice, this is my son, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus takes him up there. He is transformed into kingdom glory. They see Elijah and Moses and Jesus talking, and then God himself speaks to them from heaven, and they hear the voice of God the Father speaking to God the Son, and they're just blown away. It was the most incredible experience that Peter ever had. It's just like, wow, it was more incredible than when he walked on the water, when Jesus calmed the sea, when he raised the dead, when he healed the sick, cast out demons, everything. It was the most incredible. So what Peter does is he's arguing, get this now, he's arguing about the sufficiency of scripture. Verses three through 15 stops, tells about the most incredible miracle and experience he's ever had. And then He goes on in verses 19 through 21 to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture again. Now, there is a rule in Bible interpretation, and what is that? Context is king. And so, if the context is sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency of Scripture to verse 16, and then after 18, sufficiency of Scripture, then what is that about? And this has stumped Bible interpreters. And it ekes me when I read them. 
Because some of them go, well, we don't really know what's going on here and why Peter actually started talking about the man of transfiguration. Um, we're not quite sure because, uh, you know, I think he mentions this experience to let him let us know that he has apostolic authority because he was one of the few choice ones to be able to go up on the mountain. Uh, not a good one. Um, then somebody says, no, I think what's happening here is he's trying to show that the things he wrote about are sure because he was a f- eyewitness and everybody knows that the testimony of eyewitnesses is better and so that's why his letters and things are more authoritative. Uh, you say, well, well, what's it doing there? Well, you got to keep reading. Look at verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Notice he's back to the word of God now. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The Greek here literally reads, we have the more sure prophetic word. Think about that. More sure than what? It's amazing that people look at that and go, I have no idea. Well, what did he just talk about? The most incredible miracle he ever witnessed. Did you get it? Our Bibles are more sure than any experience, even miraculous experience, you could ever encounter. (sighs) That is so amazing. Peter goes on then to say, after he says, we have the, the, the prophetic word made more sure, sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And so keep paying attention to the word until Jesus comes back. And then he says, and I want, to, want you to know why it's more sure. Verse 20, notice first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's why you can trust the Bible. I mean, isn't that what Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 says when Isaiah speaking from the Lord says, as for the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When you share God's word with somebody, God accomplishes whatever he wants. It is the bomb. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, is not my word like a hammer that shatters rock and a fire that consumes? You don't need a miracle, man. Use the hammer of God. Use the consuming fire of God. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why do you use the word of God? Because, man, it goes in. It penetrates to the very core of that person. It judges their thoughts and makes them realize, I am a sinner and I need Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, for for it really is the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. James says in James 1.18, In the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's God's word. That's what they need. Let them hear Moses and the prophets. J.C. Ryle has said, quote, We learn that the greatest miracles would have no effect on men's heart if they will not believe God's word. He goes on to say, Faith, simple faith in the scriptures is the first thing needed for salvation. The person who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes convinced... uh, A Christian is deceiving himself. Unless he wakes up from his delusion, he will die in his sins, end quote. Have you been looking for a miracle? Have you been putting God off? Have you been setting him on the Wait, one of these days, if I see the Antichrist come in the scene, if I see these plagues, if I see some prophecies, if I see somebody rise from the dead, if I see somebody's sight restored, if I see some sort of miracle, then I will believe. Listen, you're you're not going to wake up until you're in hell. You've got to believe the gospel. 
that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again in the third day, that by believing in that and trusting in that alone to save you will be saved. But if you live your life and you're always putting God off and you're saying, no, I don't want to get that. I don't want him to have control. There's no evangelism in hell. There's no sending missionaries from hell. If you saw the miracle, it wouldn't work. Paul says in Romans 10, verses 8 and 9, But what is it? The Scriptures, the Word of God say, The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of truth which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's how people have always been saved and that's how they'll always will be saved. But the false teachers will come and say, Let me show you a miracle. The Bible isn't enough. When you leave here today, you know that the scriptures are sufficient. If you need Christ, go to the word. If you know Christ, speak the word. Let's pray. Father, we are glad to be here this morning so that we can be reminded of what the rich man never knew in this life. And which even in hell seemed to be reluctant to admit that your word is sufficient. It is that instrument by which you have chosen to use to bring people to a knowledge of you so that they can be forgiven of their sins, so they can walk before you in holiness, so they can know their creator, so that they can escape just the entrapments of this world. So, Father, that they can grow and so they can know their reason for existing in this world is not merely to have pleasure, eat and sleep and die. Father, I pray that all of us would leave here with a firm conviction that your word is truth and that we need to trust in it. For those who don't know you, may they right now confess their sins in their heart. May they say, Lord Jesus, save me, and may you save them. May they confess that they believe that you died and rose again for them. For the rest of us, may we take the truth which is sufficient and share it with the lost because we know it is your power for all who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.